You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. I'm glad everyone has joined us for this episode of the podcast. We're going to talk about the pinnacle of human endeavor and the adventures that struck out to do that. Ed Larson is joining us to talk about his book, To the Edges of the Earth, 1909, The Race for the Three Poles and the Climax of the Age of Exploration. To give you a little background on Ed, he currently holds the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and is a professor of history at Pepperdine University. He has a PhD from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, and a law degree from Harvard. Ed is also a Pulitzer Prize winner in history. He has written 13 other books, including his 2020 story, Franklin and Washington. Ed is also, um, for the for people that listened uh, to the recent podcast episode with George Gilder, he also was a former fellow of Discovery Institute in Seattle, and um, George helped help found discovery. So we have kind of a, you know, unexpected uh, connection to a few episodes ago. Um, I read, I read Ed's book back in 2018 and wrote a piece on it at the time as I love the stories and the background of what was going on economically in the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, I, Ed, I'm very thankful that you could join me today. Um, and, and thanks for being on. Just delighted to talk to you. I wish we were together in Seattle. Uh, that'd be fun. Um, before we g- get too deep into this wonderful story, I- I'd love to just ask you, what inspired you to write this story? I had done quite a bit of work on polar exploration already, and I had a book out already with called um, uh, uh, about the race to the South Pole and about early scientific research down on the, the South Pole called The Empire of Ice was the name of the book. And from that, I knew... I had discovered Ernst Shackleton's, Ernest Shackleton's first expedition, the, the so-called Nimrod expedition. Actually, mm-hmm. he had gone with Scott on the very first, on the Discovery expedition, and then went back on the Nimrod. And I found the Nimrod expedition, which has been much less researched than his uh, famous expedition where the ship went down, the Endeavor expedition, um, just absolutely fascinating. And then, because of the other work I'd done, I'd known that this was a period of extreme adventure, of where people were pushing the limits in new ways, aided by developments in technology, which made previously unthinkable efforts now thinkable because of technology. Sort of like today, in the sense that we can do things we could never think of, like going into space in new ways. And so with that technology, coupled with the spirit of adventure of the so-called Gilded Age of uh, around 100 years ago, 120 years ago, we had the 
um, the, the Duke of the Abruzzi heading to the highest places of the earth after he'd already tried to go to the North Pole. We had Peary from America trying to go to the North Pole, and we had Shackleton trying to go to the South Pole, coming very mm -hmm. close with the Nimrod. And the adventure of all that happening in the same year in a year of the so-called celebrity journalism, when uh, when journalism was at its peak with the penny newspapers everywhere and the support from the media supplying, feeding, pushing, and publicizing these events, it in some ways echoed with today in a way that I hadn't known any writer to pull together. I would totally agree with you. Um, so much of the story uh, makes you think of the current circumstances, and we will we'll come back to certain themes in that throughout our discussion today. Um, so you're, you're, you start out your story by talking about the speculation of marriage between Prince Amadeo, um, obviously, you know, Duke of the Abruzzi, and Miss Catherine Elkins, who was obviously a coal mining baroness, uh, whose father was a very wealthy uh, gentleman. How, how much of this, you know, romance that you start out, w was it just good tabloid um, and media hype, or was it a real, you know, modern-day romance? Oh, it was a modern-day romance, sort of, I guess, if you made a comparison, like the original um, uh, of Prince Charles with the woman he truly loved, uh, mm -hmm. Camilla, and being frustrated by the calls of government, just as Prince Charles could not marry his true love originally uh, because it didn't fit the plans of uh, British monarchy, the same way the uh, the Duke of the Abruzzi, who was a, a literally literal superstar, uh, because of what he'd already done with his early climbings of Matterhorn by a route that was um, n totally novel with his other uh, mountain climbing. And remember that the Duke of the Abruzzi was sort of the second in line of succession to be the king of Italy. Uh, and that, when there was a monarchy over there that was based in Turin originally, because um, mm -hmm. it had been the Savoy, the original that area of Italy became the ended up becoming the king of Italy when it unified he was a international celebrity not only was he a, a mountain climber uh, par excellence he was a, a race car driver a uh, his 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 sailboats uh, won all the tournaments he was the uh, royal celebrity and age of celebrity and so the monarchy wanted to make sure he married off properly to make this is before world war one make the proper allegiances and he had literally fallen in love uh with the uh daughter of as you described her uh, uh, a coal baron uh, one of the richest men in west virginia and from that position he had been named to the U.S. Senate and had gained uh, tremendous influence in the U.S. Senate. There was widespread speculation of him either becoming president, this was her father, either president or vice president. Uh, the Duke had met, met her when the Duke was, President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, admired, deeply admired um, men of adventure. And the Duke qualified, and so he had had the Duke to the White House, and that's when he met this woman. And they, and it was a lifelong love affair. They never loved anyone else. It was like Prince Charles and and Camilla. They never had another love, even though their marriage was stopped by the powers that be in Washington and the powers that be in Italy. And that that was captured 
in the media in which he was a hero, she was a heroine, and the media played up this love. Who would you liken him to today? I mean, when I was thinking about you know his sailing success prior to his adventures, I had um, you know we had Lisa Napoli on not, not that long ago uh, in her book about Ted Turner, who obviously was very involved with America's Cup. Larry Ellison, you know, kind of falls into that you know sailing camp. He was obviously an Italian captain um, uh, and really well known for his uh, you know work in the Italian Navy. But then he does all these other adventures, like you pointed out, the North Pole, also trying to seek the third pole in the mountains. Um, is there a person that comes to your mind as the author of this story that, that we could kind of say, well, he'd be like this? It's a great question uh, because he combined so many things. He was actually an admiral, head of the combined, during World War I, head of the combined allied forces. Italy, of course, was on, in the First World War, was on the same side as, as England and the United States. And he was mm-hmm. combined and France, and he was com- head of combined forces in the Adriatic as an admiral and as uh, the chief naval officer for the Italian uh, Navy. So when you try to combine all those things, it's tough. The people you name, I would add Branson to the list you gave. He's sort of a combination of all of those, and maybe throw in uh, Elon Musk with the um, space endeavors. He's it's like a combination. He put himself at risk more than those people because he was trying to climb the highest mountains in the world. Uh, he was trying to personally get to the North Pole. He was putting himself at greater risk. He was a sense of adventure like that. But when you add to it the military efforts, actually quite successful, the political endeavors, the race car driving, you're, you're thinking of somebody like a uh, a Ted Turner or a Branson, but combined uh, with with others. So it was a he was a a man of his time, a person of his time. When you add the nobility to it, it's tough to think of a of an apt comparison today. Newspapers had a lock on information at this time, uh, which, which you know was a very unique thing that we think about today versus you know the democratized view of media that we have. Uh, was the tabloid nature of the newspapers just as powerful as the real news? In other words, we debate a lot about what's real news and what's fake news. And, you know, there's TMZ that does actual, you know, celebrity news nowadays. But some of the stories and, you know, uh, work around him and some of these adventures you talk about, it seemed like tabloid was just as good as real information at times. True, the media, the, the newspapers had pretty much a lock on information, but there were many news sources. In America, you had Hearst at his uh, his peak, and so he had a chain of newspapers around the country. A Pulitzer had a chain of newspapers around the country. In England, you had other chains of newspapers that spanned the globe, and so you had a variety of media sources. In Even in New York, you'd have, you know, a half dozen major newspapers, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, would all have a half dozen newspapers that were on a national chain. Bennett had a chain of newspapers, and these people were competing. You also had magazines were more powerful than they would be today. So you had um, major magazines in like Cosmopolitan in America. You had a whole variety of news magazines in America and in England that would get um, international coverage. And you also had the beginnings of silent films. And silent. Uh, many of these expeditions were 
actually filmed in the sense that they sent along silent film cameras, as well as some of the best photographers in the world. The Duke of the Abruzzi was joined by an Italian photographer who was world famous for his, his mountain photography. He would go on all of his expeditions with him. So you had, you had a variety of sources, even though you didn't have um, quite the same sense of, of an ease like we have today with podcasts and with all sorts of different ease of access, you still had such a variety of newspapers and magazines, and they were all competing for a very vibrant market. And these people who ran them, like Hearst or Pulitzer, became extremely wealthy with extreme amount of influence in Bennett. So in that sense, many people could break in. And so you had many of the greatest writers of the day were writing for the newspapers and the magazines. Their work would throw in. And so they did include a variety, a remarkable variety of viewpoints that you don't have in newspapers today. In talking about these groups, another um, party that had a vested interest in these adventures was obviously governments. Um, uh, in the podcast that we just did prior to this, we talked with uh, William Quinn and John Turner in their book about boom and bust about how governments you know, can create a lot of incentive. And that was also true uh, for, for your story where um, it was either outright military involvement where you know, people would be given leave from the military, they would be um, given assistance uh, or, or you know, a certain amount of logistics help by military or all the way out to, um, like you pointed out, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and royal send-offs. Um, talk about what, what the government involvement, uh, how important that was. Government certainly played a role, especially early on, to get it going. Once it got going, the revenue coming from book deals, because these books all these people produced, like Bird or like Scott, Amundsen, Shackleton, these books were bestsellers, and so they could get so much money out of the book deals and the exclusive newspaper rights and magazine rights. They'd sell all three, book, magazine, newspaper, and they would sell it in every country. So he would sell it in France. They'd sell it in, in each of these in, in England. They'd sell each of these in the United States. Um, when you added all that together, it allowed them to break from direct government support. But because these were a polar explorer or a mountain climber in 1900 to basically to the First World War, sort of cut this off. So you're basically talking 1900 to 1915. Um, then there was a greater glory in the military and they didn't want to distract people. But during that 15-year, 20-year window, these the mountain climbers or the polar explorers were the rock stars of the day. They were like the soccer stars would be in Europe today or rock stars would be in America or England. And they commanded the most celebrity status. And so government gained prestige through them. So just as today there'd be competing with select uh, success in the Olympics for prestige, because these celebrity climbers or polar explorers brought prestige to their government and Again, before World War I changed everything, these governments were competing. And so just as the U.S. Uh, and, the, and the Soviet Union during the 50s and 60s were racing to the North Pole, so England, Germany, Italy, 
uh, the United States were competing to get first to the North Pole or first to the South Pole to climb the highest mountains. That brought credibility and therefore power to the governments. Also, you had the secondary, this was a period of empire where people wanted geographical empires. It was shortly after the scramble for Africa had completely divided up Africa among European powers, and they were looking for new realms. Antarctica qualified, getting to poles qualified. You were extending uh, empire, even climbing mountains say, in the Himalayas, because the Himalaya areas were competitive in the sense that they were somewhat unclaimed, and England was pushing its claims, Russia was putting its claims, and therefore climbing K2, or climbing other mountains in the Himalayas, again, added to empire. And so, when you add to empire, plus, if you do science while you're doing this, and Scott and Shackleton and the Duke of the Ambrosi were always doing science as well. If you're doing science, you can claim these areas in a different way. That is, you can claim them by correctly knowing their longitude, latitude, the, the, the height, the altitude, the atmosphere, the plants. You'd have take along people who were collecting specimens, fossils, by claiming these areas for science, and this was an era of science, you added further prestige. So it was a matter of prestige, power, and wealth for these different global empires. And you had a competition between England, France, the United States, and Germany at that time for global empire. So early in your story, you talk about uh, Nansen's run uh, to the North Pole uh, that happened in the late 19th century, and the Duke was really captured by this. Um, can, can you teach us about his, his trek to the North Pole? Oh, Nansen was larger than life. Every, he eventually won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, every explorer of the day viewed Nansen as their model. Nansen was a, was a well-educated expert scientist um, who was also a, uh, a daredevil explorer. And he'd been the first person to, he cut his eye teeth, he gained his fame by being the first a person to cross Greenland. Um, back then, nobody had even ever tried to cross Greenland. Uh, uh, Peary, you know, a few years before had tried. There was another Danish person who had gone a little distance in, but the Inuit who lived up there never went very far into the glaciers of Greenland. Nansen, who was a as a well, that was before Norway was independent, so it was part of, 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 of it alternated, Sweden or Denmark, uh, it was before its independence. He was uh, Norwegian and uh, had, as a student, had crossed, uh, made this expedition, which was already a target, a goal, because others had begun to try. He had gone across Greenland, and that made him famous. He was, he'd got, become a professor, he'd become an expert scientist, and he had this theory that, um, that was a recent theory, in that the North Pole ice, they knew that, they knew that there were islands, archipelago of islands in the, uh, above Canada, and there were some islands, Spitsbergen, places like this, north of Norway. Uh, they thought there was a solid polar ice, but it was discovered because an American attempt to toward the North Pole by the Jeanette earlier, um, backed by the New York newspapers, backed by Bennett's group, 
um, officially part of the a U.S. Navy expedition where where the ship was destroyed and most of the people died. Uh, DeLong, who had been the captain, had had been crushed in the ice north of Siberia on its effort to sail, viewing a, a crazy idea that the, the North Pole, because of the 24 hours of daylight, was a, was an open water and all you had to do was get through the ice and then you could sail to the North Pole. The mm-hmm. ship had been crushed north of Siberia, but the remnants of it had ended up over on the other side of the um, of the Ar- of the Arctic Ocean, and so that get the idea that this ice was rotating around. So he had this idea that he would sail up with a ship, the Fram, which was designed to not be crushed in the ice. It had a curved bottom hull. You can still visit it. It's still in. Um, it's, it's outside Oslo. And the idea was when it froze, it would be lifted up on the ice and it would ride on the ice. So his theory was to freeze himself in the ice about where the Jeanette had been crushed north of Siberia and ride around on the ice to the North Pole. Well, what had happened is it's true. That's exactly what happens. There is this rotation of ice. But as he was riding it and he froze himself in, but as he was writing, it turned out it was clear that he wasn't going to make it as far north as the North Pole. He'd gotten higher than anyone had ever gotten before. But when it was realized that he was going to sort of go by the North Pole, go riding around to the other side and get dislodged at some point, he got off with skis and with one, with one other companion and headed up to the North Pole on his own, going across the um, ice. What had happened is he couldn't make it. It was too far, and he turned around, and the ship was carried out and, just as predicted, thrown out into the, um, safely dropped back in the water, and it sailed back to just north of Norway, as it turned out, and it sailed back into Norway. Meanwhile, he turned back and made it down to um, some very northerly islands um, he had taken along a, a skis and a sort of miniature kayaks. And so they, they went with their um, skis. They came back down when they realized they couldn't make it to the North Pole, but they did make a furthest north. And then when the ice broke up, they got in their kayaks and went down to a northerly island. And they were saved because there happened to be a British expedition up on that island. They had wintered, They had to winter over in a cave. Of course, there's food up there because you get fish and you have, you have polar bears and you have other things you can, um, you can eat up there. And they were saved and they came down and they ended up arriving back in Norway at the same time as their ship was dislodged and sailed back. In so with that incredible expedition and a furthest north, um, they that they, they set from this, they set off a race to get to the North Pole, which the Duke of the Ambrosi, with his endless resources from the Italian government, because he was their biggest star and he was royalty, they sent him north, and in a way he took this to break the incredibly oppressive press about the breakup of his relationship with who he'd asked to marry her, but then was forbidden to marry, the coal baroness from um, Elkins from uh 
from West Virginia. And this was to change attention. And so he heads up with a group, not trying to sail that way, but going up to Spitsbergen and then going up by boat to the, to the ice and then trying to march across the ice in the same way that Nansen did, but with a larger team that included dogs and dog sleds um, trying to go to the north. He ends up setting a, a, a furthest north, um, loses half of the members. Uh, one of the one of the three teams uh, disappear in the in the in the ice, and um, but comes back a, a hero for his effort. And it was actually Cagney that that ended up making the furthest north, but obviously the, the Duke was, um, you know, credited with the success to your point. Um, and I, uh, we, we kind of briefly chat about this before, but this kind of felt like, you know, I mean, here we watched the Chelsea soccer club getting, you know, sold. And it kind of feels like that where as long as you're the owner or you're the deemed owner of the exploration, um, you get all the credit. Um, even if you lose half your hand and you don't even make it to that point. That's correct. You're right. He was not on the final team that went the furthest because he had had frostbite and had physical injuries. So he on that particular trip, even though he normally would put himself out, it was a part of his team that made the furthest north. He didn't make it that far. And instead, he had remained behind. But because he had been the inspiration, he had been the art organization, and because he was the celebrity... And because he was a celebrity, he is what the newspapers wanted to write about so that if you read the news stories from the day, and it was covered worldwide, it almost sounded like, even though he didn't try to make it this way, he was he wanted to give credit where credit was due. Anybody reading it would have thought that he was the one who was in the in the team that had projected the furthest. So let's pivot to to Robert Perry because he's you know kind of the 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 next big star of your book. Um, you talk a lot about how he wanted to be famous from the outset. Um, can you teach us about him as a person? Um, and obviously he he spends a lot of time working on this endeavor. Um, you know to end up going to the North Pole. Um, and, and, but could could you just start with the person himself, Robert Perry? was a um, was one of a kind. He had grown up uh, mostly in Maine, uh, went to Bowdoin College, uh, became an in, became an engineer, engaged in was in the US Navy as a naval engineer, engaged by the Navy to go down to try to scout a canal. Um, connecting the Atlantic and Pacific. And at that time, they were considering both one in Panama and one in Nicaragua. And he had work, was working on the one in Nicaragua. And his father had died when he was young. He was raised by his mother. He was devoted to his mother. And he developed a passion for fame. He wanted to be famous. He believed that becoming a celebrity and becoming famous would be his entree into the highest circles, which which it did, it became that, and he was he was transfixed with this idea of being a celebrity. Now, the Duke, who we've been talking about, the Duke was simply, I mean, he was like you know, like the Prince of Monaco was for Grace Kelly. I mean, he was famous just because of who he was, and back sure. then the Italian royal family automatically had that entree into anything, and then he became first a sailor and a race car driver, and then the bigger glory of trying to get to the North Pole, and then finally the mountain climbing. So he already had that status. Peary did not have any of that. Peary was 
maybe upper working class, um, lower professional class, but was transfixed with this idea of becoming famous. And he saw, through seeing what happened to Nansen, and uh, particularly Nansen, but also then the Duke of the Ambrosi, he saw that going to the North Pole would be a source to make him famous. His first goal was to cross Greenland, and he made an effort, a very mediocre effort, uh, and then Nansen came in and stole the glory. So now it had to be a new uh, goal. At that time, it was thought that Greenland might extend all the way to the North Pole. They didn't know that their maps of the world showed Greenland widening out, as any map would, widening out to the north. And the thought is, well, we might be able to cross Greenland and make it all the way to the North Pole. So that became his his early effort. And again, as in Italy, once he developed this initial interest in going that way. And remember, he was a, already a member of the Navy. He was an officer in the Navy, an engineer, uh, not a, a person on ship. But because he was getting attention and he had a great gift for promoting himself and getting me- newspaper coverage, the United States at that time, it was the 1890s, uh, McKinley was president, first Cleveland and then McKinley, wanted to join this stage. America was trying for the first time to gain a global empire. Hawaii had been um, a- annexed. Um, we The Spanish-American War was coming where the Philippines and uh, Puerto Rico was added. Islands in the, in the uh, Pacific. Eventually, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, will have his great white fleet that sails around the world. The United States is trying to get in this imperial game that England, to a lesser extent, Italy, France, Germany was getting into it then. England and France had a head start. And because Peary was getting this attention and the North Pole seemed a plausible goal and he was building up connections, in his case, mainly with the New York Times to report his efforts and getting support from the the Geographical Society, the National Geographic Society, and the American Ex- and the Explorers Club in New York City, the Navy got behind him and decided to give him paid leaves and support to do these endeavors. And so he went time and again, he went up to Greenland, the ones he initially tried to cross, to instead head north, go as far north as he could, and then head north. There had been a couple earlier efforts by American expeditions in the 1880s to project groups up to the north, basically to chart the areas and also maybe reach the North Pole. They had failed completely. I mean, they were utter failures, remarkable, spectacular failures with massive amounts of death and cannibalism and just gruesome effects. And so Peary tries a different approach and he, he works to go native. And his idea was to enlist the Inuit as his helpers, as his support, as his companions. And he goes with a very small number of Americans, often with his African-American valet, who, who joins him on these expeditions. And they push their way up to the end of the northern edge of Greenland and discover that it ends discovers and makes several expeditions here. So we're talking about expedition after expedition, and then they decide they can't make it the Greenland route, so instead they shift their efforts, and with the support they're getting, develop new technology in the sense of steel or iron ship with more powerful um, motors 
engines that will push them north as far possible to get to the very top of the Canadian archipelago, Ellesmere Island, and have a base around the top. And from that base, then try to go where the sea ice comes down, at least in the winter, all the way to the coast and go across the sea ice, that gets them closer than they'll get in Greenland, and head to the North Pole. And so effort after effort after effort, he keeps getting paid leaves of absence from the Navy, he gets increasing support, he gets a following, backed by mostly by the the New York Times, becomes his lead supporter at the Times, is 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 not the largest newspaper in New York. Bennett had a bigger one, the Tribune was bigger. And with the coverage he can give, and the books he's writing, and the support he's getting from the National Geographic Society. And then when Roosevelt becomes president, Teddy Roosevelt, who personally befriends him, sends him off, goes to the launching of his, uh, just as the the king of Italy would be at the launching of every expedition by the Duke of the Ambrosi. So Teddy Roosevelt would be there. Sagamore Harbor, he'd leave, he'd leave with his ship out of Sagamore Harbor, Perry would, pushing relentlessly toward the North Pole. And he keeps getting older till he's in his 50s. By the time of the last expedition, he's already lost his toes due to earlier uh, frostbite on earlier expeditions. But he is absolutely driven. Yeah, and as you point out in your book, he uh, even though he was driven by this, he definitely found the the time to to create a couple different families in that process. Um, let, let, let's uh, let's pivot to Shackleton because he's he's really kind of in my mind he's the third key character to your book, um, but he's probably the most interesting if you think about the socioeconomic rung that he comes from relative to the others. Um, and so j- could you just start out by just teaching us about, you know, a little bit about Shackleton's background and, and really what credentials did he have to even think about going to the South Pole? Shackleton was as amazing as the other two. All three of these were amazing. And let me just add, you said multiple families. Yeah, there were families. He had his own family back in America, but he had Inuit families because he was going up so often. So he had mm-hmm. Inuit families and Inuit children. Some of those children became polar explorers themselves, and some of his children and grandchildren have made it to the North Pole overland. With Shackleton, you get a very you get a similarly ambitious person, a person of driving ambition, but not so self-centered. Now this seems a little interesting. Peary was, Peary would, you know, was the type who'd, who'd do anything for glory, including things that, you know, stab anyone in the back. Shackleton sure. was not that sort. Everyone loved and respected Shackleton, just as they all loved and respected Nonsen. They were the two unmitigated um, beloved hero. Shackleton had grown up in a family. They were English, and they had moved to Ireland, as many people did, in the late 1800s when Ireland was, when England was trying to integrate Ireland into the British Empire and Anglify it, sort of. Uh, and if you think about his father, I guess he was a wannabe Guinness. Guinness, of course, Guinness. We drink Guinness beer. That's not really Irish. That's English. That's made in Ireland. It's a, a Anglo-Irish family. The same way with um, Shackleton's father. He went over and started a brewery and started a, in Ireland, but it, it didn't do as well. And Shackleton, Ernst Shackleton, um, had gone uh, back to England uh, when his father still had a little money and went to a private school, boarding school. After that time, his father's fortunes continued to deteriorate, so he signs on with the um, Merchant Marine, not the Navy, but the Merchant Marine, and signs on with 
eventually becomes an officer with the P&O, which is a still around. It was a, uh, a carrier of of uh, mostly pa- uh, cargo and passengers, passenger ships, mm-hmm. and um, the Pacific and the Orient, I think is what P&O stands for. And in the process, its ships get used to deliver soldiers to the Boer War in the late, very late 1890s. And on one of those troop ships, he befriends the son of a very wealthy son who's going to war, a very, very wealthy English industrialist. And they become friends. And Shackleton, they used to say, had, was English, but had the one thing he got out of being born in Ireland is he had the gift of the Blarney. He was a wonderful speaker. He was a wonderful talker. He was a wonderful storyteller. And he, men loved him and women loved him. And he loved many women, uh, sort of like Perry in that respect. And he had many very close friends, but he was very loyal to those friends. And so he had this same drive for fame and glory. And just as today, if you want to be a rock star, you want to be in Europe, a soccer star, you become a celebrity. You can break out of whatever limitations you have. And he felt limited in that his father originally had some money and ambitions, and then they sort of collapsed. He wanted to become famous, not by not by over the backs of anyone else, sort of like Peary, but he would happily share the glory, but he wanted to raise himself up. And so the way to do it, he decided, was polar exploration. At this time, the British government, with money through the Royal Society, which is a scientific society, and the Royal Geographic Society, which is a geographical mapping and and global exploration society, both based in London, were mounting an expedition to join in the race, not to the North Pole, because that looked like it was American territory and Peary was dominating it. And the British had several failed expeditions to the North Pole. Instead, try the South Pole, because earlier, 80 years earlier, Ross had opened the Ross Sea, a great um, James Clerk Ross, one of the amazing explorers of the early 1800s, had found his, the first person to the North Magnetic Pole, had made a push to the South Pole and discovered the bay that opens up in the Antarctic summer that you can sail down almost to the South Pole. And so the British were trying that, and the lead of it had been given to a, a, a young officer named Robert Falcon Scott. And Robert Falcon Scott was putting together a team. And so Shackleton decided, I want to be on that ship. And he worked through this connection he had with this wealthy industrialist. And this industrialist threw a bunch of money, basically matching funds for the expedition along with the British government funds to the Discovery Expedition. But in return, he demanded or asked that Ernst Shackleton be included as one of the officers on the Discovery ship. And so the Discovery ship was designed like the Fram uh, with the curved hull to rise above frozen ice. The idea was it was going to go down into the Ross Sea, which is directly south of New Zealand, get as further south as possible, take a team of scientists who are going to scientific research, and then Scott is going to head to the South Pole with a small team that's going to include Shackleton. So they go down, they winter over, they end up being frozen in and end up spending two winters. They winter over at a base where I've been down in on Ross Island, um, named for James Clerk Ross, um, which is near... Um, very near where the Murdo base, which is the main U.S. base in Antarctica, 
I've spent a win, uh, an entire season there. And then from there, they headed off south. They thought it might be across this large glacial, flat glacier, plateau glacier, uh, the Ross Ice Shelf, it's now called. It's called the Great Ice Barrier then. They thought they might be able to just easily get across. And so Shackleton and Scott head across with two others, head across um, initially with dog sleds, but they don't know, unlike Perry, they've never mastered dog, sh dog sledding. Uh, it's a skill that Perry mastered, Amundsen mastered, Nansen mastered. They were all from the north. Um, uh, Perry learned it through the Inuits. Um, Amundsen and Nansen learned it through the native peoples in Norway and in Finland. And they end up failing miserably. They come back. They barely survive. Um, there's a great story to tell. They become celebrities because Scott and Shackleton both are gifted writers, and they write up this story that keeps people on the edge of their seat. They uh, And then Shackleton then raises funds through his ability to convince um, leading industrialists because he has this wonderful personality. And he tells the story and he plans a new expedition because he said, we found out that you can't go across this ice shelf all the way. You run into mountains, but we can climb up those mountains, get across the mountains and go up the polar plateau. They had, the scientist on the expedition had discovered that you climb the mountains, the, the Victoria Mountains, the, East, uh, the Antarctic Mountains there, Trans-Antarctic Mountains, you get to a, a mile and a half high polar plateau then we can go to the polar plateau to the to the pole. So he had this whole plan worked out, and he he convinces some industrialists to back him. Beardmore, primarily Beardmore, who was a industrialist with many factories, but also an early car manufacturer. He takes one of these automobiles down with him to drive over the ice for as, as sort of a publicity stunt for the uh, the car, and um, he gets funding to go back in uh, 1907. Uh, with his own expedition on the, sh the ship Nimrod. That's why it's called the Nimrod Expedition. And he pioneers the route to the South Pole. It turns out he falls just short, uh, less than 100. He's within 100 miles of the pole. He's up on the polar plateau. He goes up this Beardmore Glacier, named the glacier, the route after his sponsor, the Beardmore. He's got, um, he writes up this story. It's published in books. Uh, the Heart of the Antarctic, that becomes a bestseller. He, it's published in newspapers and magazines. And he becomes even a bigger celebrity than Scott. He's invited by the king to Balmore Palace. He achieves everything he's hoped for, except like anyone else, he gets hooked on this. And he then goes back after Scott and Amundsen have succeeded to get to the South Pole, he comes back with his idea of the Trans-Antarctic Expedition where he's going to start on one side, go completely across the Antarctica, um, stopping at the pole, going on across, and that becomes the, the, uh, the expedition where the ship is crushed just on his way and he makes his famous escape by going across the sea ice and then sailing up to the um, uh, South Georgia Island. So the Duke of the Abruzzi, um, Prince Amadeo, was pushed uh, beginning in late 1907, as you put in your book, uh, for the highest peak in the world, a.k.a. the third pole. Um, and I'm going to quote a line, uh, a couple lines from your book here. Uh, 
These fashions carried over into the early 20th century. It was part of a cult of extreme adventure linked to the wealth and leisure flowing from industrialization. Our, our Darwinian sense of struggle against nature and eased access to once remote locales due to imperial conquests, steamships, railroads, telegraphs, uh, is, is the end of the quote. So how do you look at, I mean, I, I agree with you in so many ways that looking at this era is very analogous to what we've seen today. Um, you know, do you look at us trying to go to the moon through wealthy industrialists or what we'll call tech billionaires in, in many cases, uh, you know, very similar to what we saw um, back then with these adventurers tying themselves to, um, you know, big money like Beardmore? Absolutely. I think I'm sold on this stuff. I, I, I think that the, the, uh, the tech billionaires or the others who, who are getting behind going to the moon or going to Mars or whatever, it's the same sort of drive. It's the spirit of adventure. They have the excess capital. It pushes the technology. They have the technology already, partly, but they push it even further and they get adventure seekers like back then, Shackleton, Scott, Amundsen, Nansen, these adventurers, the Duke of the Abruzzi, they want to participate in it. The public loves it. It pushes humans to the edge. And that's the story they told. In every case, they, they didn't hide the technology. What they were doing is they were pushing the human body to the edge. And the stories that sold best by uh, the, the accounts of the Duke of the Abruzzi, the accounts of Peary, the accounts of Scott and Shackleton, when they wrote up those accounts, they, wrote, they pushed themselves to the edge of their endeavor using technology to extend how far they could go, not to make them safe, to push them even further. So when you see these, uh, the popularity now of extreme climbing on mountains, right up the edges of mountains, or the extreme climbing up to, you know, of course, everyone's climbing Everest now, but K2 is a tougher challenge even to this day, or climbing the, the, the most difficult mountains in the world, or like Larry Ellison, going as deep as you can into the ocean, pushing this endeavor. And our fascination with that, this, I think, brings out the best in people, men and women doing it, it pushes their endeavor. It makes us as a people, both nationalistic, but also people in general. It shows what we can do. It inspires all of us. And it advances technology that has valuable spinoffs. Now, these people in the age of the Duke of the Abruzzi and Shackleton, they were getting rich off this. The promoters were getting rich, and the technology. Perry was especially good at developing better ships, better motors, bringing in teams that could improve this. Nansen invented the stove that's still used, invented new tents that are still used for, camp for camping in extreme uh, situations. Scott invented the tractor. He, the original tractor, the original tracked vehicle was developed by Scott to use in the South Pole. The track vehicle was then transformed into the tank in World War I. Um, Amundsen 
ended up pioneering and advancing air flight. He became a pilot and he was pushing air flights and going up into the polar regions. Um, he made he actually ends up being the first person to go up across the North Pole in a dirigible of all things, the Norn, uh, the Norge. Um, and he goes across the North Pole before anybody else does in a dirigible. So we are pushing all that technology, and that's like today. Today, it is an inspiration for what humans can do. It 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 corrals resources, resources that then end up, sure, people can say, oh, they're wasting their money going to the moon. No, they end up becoming even richer because of that, and they're advancing our technology and our ability to do things not only in the skies, but also on Earth. So I just view it as the cutting edge of humankind. Yeah, the one cynical part about me, though, was I, as I was reading this and thinking about really, you know, what was going on in particularly Europe with the Alps and obviously the Matterhorn that you write a lot about um, with the ascension of that um, is the flip side of it, I thought, is at least in the mountain cases, uh, were we just creating the future great skiing and heli skiing adventures of Europe um, in some of these cases that ultimately to kind of play back on a theme of your book is something that very wealthy people partake in and obviously, you know, lower income people don't tend to uh, partake in. Is, is, isn't this just a thing of the wealth, whether we look at then or now? Certainly when you, when you normalize it. Sure. Just as today, uh, you get hundreds and hundreds of people climbing Everest every year. Hundreds of people. They're waiting in line to get up. Um, that's happened during this same period. Now, you flip back 100 years, that's what happened to the Matterhorn. When the Matterhorn originally, when the Duke of the Ambrosi went up a new way, um, when others were first doing the Matterhorn or doing um, uh, uh, Mount Blanc, which is actually it was an easier climb back then, when you were do when you were pioneering those, that took extreme adventure and skill, and it wasn't just the rich. Sure, you had people like a Shackleton, um, like a Nansen, who came from at best middle class. You also could have examples of actually almost working class people who went along, who got to go along on some of these expeditions. Certainly, the Discovery expedition included many people of this sort who were very much working class. Um, um, people from England or from Australia or from uh, Ireland who would go along. You've got a Perry taking along his valet, who um, uh, Matthew Henson, who becomes a star in his own right, who's African-American and from very poor resources. So in the early days when they are pioneering this, working class people can join in. And Shackleton actually becomes a hero not only of the the upstairs is the era of upstairs, downstairs, we know. The downstairs people loved him too, and he never, never broke with that group of people. He always remained associated with both. So it provided an opening as you're pushing the edge, as you're first doing it. But then you correctly point out, after it becomes normalized, where just like the Everest today, where wealthy people can just pay money and be virtually carried up to the top of, <laughs> of Everest. It was the same one. They can't be carried up to K2. That's still an adventure. But yeah. um, but that's what it happened. By this time, by the time we're talking about, uh, you get to um, um, Matterhorn, and Teddy Roosevelt does it on his 
honeymoon. He goes over there. And when um, when Churchill gets there on his honeymoon, he thinks it's too easy to go up Matterhorn. He climbs up another mountain, Mount Rosa, which is right near there. Um, so you're right. It's just, and they were both wealthy people. Um, it becomes um, just another uh, checklist on the uh, bucket lists of young, wealthy adventurers. But at the initial breakthrough, if you go with the Discovery, if you go with the Nimrod, if you go with the, um, uh, those early expeditions, they're all, it, is, it is the opening for many low-class, working-class people with incredible drive, but it is open to all classes. When to your point, the, with the adventurers, it's not like they set out to romanticize this. They were obviously seeking to do things to, uh, to be the first, to claim title to it um, for various reasons. But you also point out in your book that um, you know the poets did romanticize these places. For example, you talked about Mary Shelley being with her husband there in, in Switzerland and talking about um, the views of Mont Blanc and also uh, Wordsworth. Um, do, do they really propel these places into the intellectual, into wealthy circles? Because that became a huge tourist following, like you said, once it was normalized. Absolutely. And in the same way with the uh, great paintings that were done of the Arctic uh, that from that same period, where you get people like Turner painting these paintings of the Arctic, you get the, you get the, um, the writers. These places became ultimate destinations and it they attract not only the people who are physically trying to push the edge but you get people writers like everybody from Wordsworth to Tennyson to uh, uh, to Mary Shelley who are culturally pushing the edge and you find that today where you get and photographers some of the greatest photographers in the world who are willing to go along on these extreme expeditions now they typically would they would typically stay back at the camps and take remarkable photographs which then became classics and were put in exhibitions around the around Europe that they could sell with and it would get picked up in obviously magazines and other uses for these photographs this becomes a cultural phenomena and as it becomes a cultural phenomena as we begin to see mountains is beautiful which we really didn't see mountains as beautiful before that, but it's in the, only in the 1800s that we begin to see these extreme places as extremely beautiful. And the ice in the north, as opposed to a terrible thing that you'd want to avoid, becoming a, a goal. And you have writers like in America, Edgar Allan Poe. In uh, Europe, you have uh, the writer who later wrote the Sherlock Holmes, first writing about uh, the polar regions. These areas transfix people. It's Frankenstein, of course. His end comes at the North Pole. That's where he heads, the monster in Frankenstein with the scientist Frankenstein following him. That's told, if you read the whole story, that's told as a, um, as a, as a, as a, it's a trip to the North Pole, and the people who find Frankenstein and see the monster are people who are trapped on an expedition to the North Pole. These became extreme destinations, extreme destinations in art, extreme destinations in culture, extreme destinations, and therefore they become bucket list destinations for the wealthy. So, I, and by the way, if the listeners are picking up on this, there, there's just so much to Ed's book. 
Um, so to say I, we're uh, we're paraphrasing our question and answer, I think would be an understatement because there's just there's such great. I'm looking through my notes now, thinking, wow, there, there's no way we're going to cover everything that I had hoped for. But let me go to a kind of a couple uh, last questions um, that I'd love to get in, and they don't have to be super big, but I just want to make sure we hit a couple things. Um, so Peary, Peary deals with this question of truth. Um, you know, did he do what he did uh, in, in, in reaching the North Pole? And um, you, you give his evidence and you also provide the critique of his journals during that time. Um, and then you also talk about uh, Wally Herbert uh, from the National Geographic in the 1980s, you know, actually reviewing the materials to ask the question, did he really make it to the North Pole? And it looks like the summary judgment from your work is that Peary didn't. Um, was that the real risk with these folks is that they wanted glory so bad they were willing to just lie about it? Again, it depends on an individual character and the character of the person. Uh, it is almost impossible. When you look at character, it's impossible to believe that Roald Amundsen or Ernst Shackleton or, or Robert Falcon Scott, that they would ever lie. It's just not in their character. They're just um, impeccable individuals. They would push themselves to the limit, but they wouldn't lie about something. Peary is a different sort of person, like Bird, the American pilot. Um, and he just, you just, he became so obsessed with getting to the North Pole. And by this time, he had, he had, he was quite old. By the time he was in his fifties, back then that was quite old. Um, to be making this sort of uh, adventurous trip. And he had tried so long to get to the North Pole. He knew this was his, his last attempt. He intentionally, one thing, when these expeditions became bucket list expeditions, especially for young wealthy people, the sons of, of multimillionaires, industrialists mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, they would often sign on to go along. So on Shackleton's expedition, on per certainly on Perry, you'd have these children, you know, who went to Yale and Harvard and recently got out and were 23, and they'd pay an enormous amount of money to go along. Sort of like today when you get a wealthy person willing to pay whatever it takes to be on the space shot of, uh, of one of Elon Musk's or Brons Branson's uh, space shots. Uh, mm -hmm. So they pay a lot of money to be on the, on the trip. He, he and he, what Perry did is he would take them for a distance, but then people who knew what they were doing, he would send back. So it would end up being just um, Henson, who was his longtime valet and, uh, and uh, person who ends up developing, having an ability to work with the Inuit um, and the Inuit drivers of the sleighs. Uh, Perry, by this age, was so old that he rode mostly on the dog sleds as opposed to walk, and he'd lost his toes mm -hmm. with frostbite on an earlier expedition. So he didn't have anybody along to, we didn't have GPS back then. And the only way you'd know you're at the North Pole is do sights of the sun, because you're there in the summer and there are no stars and it's light 24 hours a day. Sure. Periodic sights of the sun going around in a circle and measuring the, the height, and therefore you could gauge using a sextant and proper equipment exactly where you were. Well, by the time Perry on the last trip makes it to the North Pole, he's the only one who is skilled enough to do that. In contrast, 
Um, Amundsen, when he makes it to the South Pole, he takes along three other expert navigators who can separately do this, who have different interests. Shackleton is very careful to take along an arch rival who's the captain of the ship, who can separately do the calculations, uh, who has separate standing and integrity. Scott does the same thing. They take along people so you have multiple people doing the test. Indeed, in the case of Amundsen and, and Scott making the South Pole, Amundsen makes it, Scott makes it about a month later to the same place. Amundsen calculates where the South Pole is, leaves a tent and a flag, which Scott gets to. There's a note saying, um, that he's supposed to pick up, he picks up and brings back and they find it his um, final camp. So you have these, these other indications of integrity, which you don't have with when you're talking about Perry. Perry had a history of making claims in Greenland that other explorers questioned. He claimed he made it to the top of Greenland. Other explorers got there and says, no, Perry, it wasn't here. It doesn't match what he wrote and said. And so there was a history of questions about his credibility. And so when he claims the South Pole, even at the time, many people doubted it. They said, your, your records don't match. You could not have made this distance in this time. You couldn't mm. have done that. So even when he comes back, there are a lot of doubters. The uh, British, the European, I should be careful, the European um, geographical societies, most of them will not certify the trip. Where in contrast, everyone certifies what Amundsen does. Every, all, the ex, all the National Geographic societies in the different countries certify what Scott does, what Shackleton does, uh, what Nansen does. But there's great doubt, and it's only finally the American, uh, the National Geographic Society in America, that certifies what, what Perry had done, even though the British have always doubted it. And so... Uh, uh, even in America, there's a split, and the Tribune, the other newspapers, other than the New York Times, which was the his sponsor, the other newspapers openly doubt it and question it. There are a lot of questionable stories he had brought. You know, he has a lot of critics because he had brought back live Inuits from an earlier expedition who then die, who are put on a, a display in the in the um, uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York where they die. Um, so there, and of course, the stories had gotten out about his other families up there. So you know, he brought a lot. There's a lot of baggage along that Perry carried with him, and that's why there was always questions of whether he made it. And then finally, this great British polar explorer in the in the 1980s and 90s um, sort of redoes the trip and uh, concludes that it just wasn't possible. And then both the National Geographic Society and the New York Times revoke their certification. So none of these people make it to the actual polls they were seeking. You know, the, uh, you know, like you said, Amundsen did it later and others did the actual North Pole later and the top of K2 and other peaks later. Um, using the, the, the Duke of the Abruzzi, Prince Amadeo, um, he, he kind of has tragedy, like you pointed out with the Elkins' daughter. Um, they never get to, you know, have the love affair that they wanted. And in not a dissimilar way, he never really got to have the love affair with what he wanted um, tied to the poles. And then you kind of talk about briefly in your final chapter about his later life where, you know, he had a lot of success in the Navy, 
um, obviously in Libya against the Ottomans, and then again in World War II fighting on the side of the Allies. Um, but in the end, he, he just kind of ends up as a vassal of Mussolini in Somalia. Is that a, is that a fair characterization of kind of the tragedy of his later life? What you capture is what happened to the Italian monarchy. Okay. And he never, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a good question. He always loves, um, his love of his life never changes. And he always wears a locket of her hair. Uh, he's buried with this. Um, she always carries mementos of him. She marries somebody else but never really loves that person. Um, he, when Mussolini comes into power, he had been a, a hero, certainly, of the monarchy. But the monarchy is overshadowed by Mussolini. They're there. They let him in. Uh, and then Mussolini runs things and sidelined the monarchy. The monarchy had actually been not like the Queen of England today. They had actually been the leaders of the country. Sure. And Mussolini comes in, and he never supports Mussolini. His family does. He, uh, the king does, who is his cousin. And so he moves to Somali. He, Somali was an Italian colony that had been captured. And then to er, Mussolini will eventually use that as the base to invade Ethiopia and conquer Ethiopia, which, um, but the Duke never really supports Mussolini. And so he wants to get out from under him, but can't really leave. So he moves to Somali and tries to build a model camp. And it really is impressive. Um, it really ran until about 10 years ago. It was still existing. And he tries to build a native area where it'll be a model for how to make sustainable agriculture where the natives get full value for their work. And he is honored the native africans honor him you can you could go back and tell the recent problems in somali you could go back his grave was honored up till about 20 years ago the community lives on he ends up marrying a native woman there he ends up doing expeditions on his own into ethiopia and into other regions that hadn't been reached by white people before uh, and so in that way, he carves out a niche d niche during the run-up to the World War II and then early in World War II where he gets as much satisfaction as he could. But of course, Italy, while it was on the, we'd say, the right side in World War I, was on the wrong side in World War II. And that put him in a very awkward situation as someone unlike all of his relatives who didn't back the war effort and this is a it's a tough end it's a tough end for him yeah and reading your book i i also did some studying of uh interest rates because we talk about all this wealth and the media moguls and these great endeavors among you know wealthy classes of people and what i really took notice of is um if you look at treasury bonds they went very low in yield in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and so I, I always kind of wondered how much of a gestalt, right? In other words, it was almost um, an unreal era, not because the people didn't try these adventures, but because that kind of prosperity and wealth just couldn't last. Um, and and kind of the Duke's story, the Duke of Abruzzi, his story kind of fulfills that, you know, the monarchies were gonna end, the, the aristocracy was gonna change, and it wasn't going to be as good as the prior era. Um, did you, did you, I would say, did you see that in parallel? In other words, we were going to a paradigm shift in those, 
in, in that world? You know, you bring wonderful expertise to this, and it fits. Everything you've said fits with the reactions and the situation that I found. Um, you bring you bring the money to it, which is, of course, the underlying reason why it works. And the 1890s, the late, very late Victorian, and then what in England, Europe, in England they call uh, fin de siècle, which is what they call it in France, or the, then the Edwardian age of the 19, 1900 to 1910. Those were were these years where the wealth, but there was even at the time there was a sense that this was all very fragile. Mm-hmm. And then when all of Europe collapses with World War I, and suddenly everything that these people had been trying to do, when you compare them with the trenches, uh, the war in the World War I was more mentally, financially, and culturally devastating than even World War II. Because sure. when it was over, more people were killed, and then you add on the Spanish flu on top of it, and more wealth was destroyed, and the empires were basically destroyed. You go into World War One, you had the British Empire, you had the and the British monarchy, you had the German Empire and the German monarchy, you had the Austria-Hungary Empire and their um, and their monarchy, you had the Russian monarchy, the Czars and their empire, you had the Chinese Empire, you had the Ottoman Empire, really all of those were destroyed, and the, and the global France, all of those were destroyed. The English Empire sort of survives, somewhat, muddles on, but not in the same stage. Labor takes over, um, mm-hmm. and it was changed, and eventually their empire isn't gone immediately, but the German is gone immediately. Austria-Hungary destroyed and split up into separate countries. The, the Tsars killed, uh, overthrown in Russia and then killed, and that split up. Uh, the Chinese emperor is 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 over. The Ottoman Empire is reduced to Turkey, and uh, and so everything changes. And during the twenties, they have to refigure out. And these extreme expeditions, going to the North Pole, going to the South Pole, climbing mountains, all of a sudden, when you see what this world led to in the chaos of World War One, which was not a good war. After it was over, everyone felt, how did we get into this chaos? How did we, how did humans end into this endeavor? It wasn't like World War II where the victors felt victorious at the end. Even the victors didn't feel victorious at the end of World War I. It all seemed um, like folly. And we built a new, a new economy was built during the 20s. You should probably know, mostly on the rise of electricity. And so the new um, success stories, Siemens or General Electric in America, uh, those, this was a new sort of economy that was built, a new sort of world was built in the 1920s. Um, Again, but one that didn't involve in the same way, uh, Extreme adventure. Extreme adventure doesn't come back into vogue in the same way until beginning in the 50s and then in the the later part of the 20th century. Uh, So there was a change. There was a cultural shift. And it economics. is a, is a fundamental part of that. No question. And and like we're pointing out about today, or as you mentioned, you know, we went to the moon in the 60s um, and looking at the late eight, the late 19th and early 20th century, what they had all in common is interest rates cut really low. So I, I, as, I, as, I, as I, you know, think of all these analogous periods, I think to myself, 
are humans just getting excited about what they've created, <laughs> which is kind of funny to think about. Um, I, I've, I've had just an absolute uh, ton of fun today. You, you mentioned the Romanovs. I just got done reading Helen Rappaport's book, um, After the Romanovs, which does a wonderful of recanting that, you know, the ending of an era, like you just pointed out from the Russian perspective, you know, via Paris. Um, so again, I, I, I've just loved your book. Um, uh, I, if I haven't said this already in our podcast, I, I'd highly recommend to all of our, our listeners that they go out and get a copy of Ed's book, um, To the Edges of the Earth. And, and what I think his book does the best job of it, it tackles the excesses of what governments may seek, wealth will dream about, and humans will endeavor, even as Ed, Ed just pointed out, to their folly. Uh, it is a story of the human spirit to adventure to the unknown and believe in the journey that they took there. Um, even in the case of, like we talked about, Perry. Um, where we could debate the finer points of, of what that journey was. So um, go out and get a copy of his book today. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, um, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. Thank you for joining us for a book with legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to a book with legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.